Off the first weekend of February, we are back, and it is the Fight Freaks Unite Recap Podcast. I am the somewhat lucid, somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. He is our insider from his Fight Freaks Unite Substack. Imagine that. It's the same name. And BigFightWeekend.com. Hello to Dan Rayfield. As we have seen a wild women's title fight won by Amanda Serrano, uh, blood flowing everywhere throughout that fight between she and Erica Cruz, and Serrano is now undisputed at featherweight. We have seen Emmanuel Navarrete gain a third world title in a third different weight division, but my goodness, uh, went to the canvas and was on the verge of maybe being stopped uh, in this battle in Arizona on Friday night, only to rally and score a knockout win. We have much to go over. Uh, Dan Rayfield. So uh, anyway, good to have you in here and a lot to discuss. How are we feeling off the weekend? Well, I'll just say I feel good, but I'll say this. All those people that were crowning Better Be Evan Yard as the fight of the year uh, <laughs> in the uh, early part of, you know, in January, I'm not saying it, it doesn't have a chance, but we're not, I'm not even sure it was the best fight of the last two weeks because this past weekend, and we're going to talk about the two fights, you know, and if you divvy up the men's fights and the women's fights, fine. If you lump them together, we got two more fight of the year candidates in the span of uh, 24 hours because Navarrete versus Wilson. And then, of course, uh, Serrano versus Cruz. You got two other great fights that stack up on the same level as as uh, better be of any art. I mean, from that standpoint, what a tremendous couple of weeks if you're a fight fan. Yeah, there was a lot of action. There is no doubt. And again, thank you for finding us however you did so through a social media link, through the websites. Make sure you're following, subscribing. We've been bribing you. We're going to give away uh, those Takate collector's item cups coming up here um, later this week. We're going to name somebody that uh, rated us, reviewed us, and screenshotted it and got it to us. Uh, and we're going to draw them at random to win those cups that, out of the Rayfield collection, out of his fantastic memorabilia collection. He's going to give you a couple of those. So more on that in a little bit. Make sure you're rating and reviewing and subscribing. We love that because we come to you on the recap off of the weekend, usually overnight, Sunday night into Monday morning, give or take. Uh, preview always out by Friday morning, if not Friday midday, where you can get the very latest. Make sure that you're locked in here for us. And let's get right to Serrano and Erica Cruz, the Matchroom to Zone main event, 10-round ladies world featherweight undisputed title fight. Won by Amanda Serrano. I want your thoughts. Bloody fight, literally. Oof. Gory, graphic, bloody fight. I've got a couple of comments, but I want your analysis as Serrano gets her hand raised uh, and another great accomplishment for her that she's now undisputed at featherweight. Well, she is, as she said, uh, she was very proud of becoming the undisputed featherweight champion, particularly in this four-belt era we're living in. And she made the point there's lots of, not lots, but there are other fighters, men and women, who become uh, the undisputed champion. Uh, she is the only woman to ever win world titles in seven different weight classes, so she still stands alone in that accomplishment. The only one that has done more man or women is Manny Pacquiao with his world titles in eight weight classes. In any event, fantastic fight. Uh, credit to Erica Cruz. She could have packed it in. They had a terrible, terrible headbutt in the third round, right in the middle of the forehead hairline, and she's bleeding like a stuck pig. I mean, it was as grotesque and as graphic and as bloody as a fight I have seen in a long, long time. I may have spoken about this on the podcast uh, in the past. I've talked about the bloodiest fight that I can ever remember being ringside for in Chicago years ago, the first light heavyweight title fight between Tomas Adamak and Paul Briggs who were fighting for the vacant WBC light heavyweight title at that time on the undercard of Andrew Galata against Lehman Brewster. And 
that was a very, 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 very bloody fight, mainly because of Adamek and his broken nose. And I had said to uh, Ron Borges, the Boston reporter that I was seated next to, late in that fight, I turned to him and said, I'm starting to feel a little queasy because there was so much blood. When I watched Saturday night's fight between Serrano and Cruz, even though I was not ringside, uh, but it's almost more graphic when you're watching on television and you've got the up close and the replays and the corner work and all that. I, I had flashbacks of that night because there was that much blood. And I, I noticed when the fight was uh, at some point, uh, they, they showed the, the ring mat and the ring mat had the DAZN logo. The DAZN logo is in white letters, you know, on the blue canvas. The white letters were covered in blood. I mean, it went yep. from a white canvas to a red canvas. And even Serrano uh, did not have the type of cut that Erica Cruz had, but she also had a cut in the corner of one of her eyes. And it was just a bloodbath. And it was so crazy. And Chris Mannix, who was one of the DAZN broadcasters, said exactly what I was thinking, which is, I can't tell if the blood on Serrano is from her own cut or if it was because she's been getting the blood on her from Erica Cruz, because every time she would hit her, and she hit her a lot, the blood was go, you know, would just go flying all over the place. Uh, so it was a great fight. Now, Serrano was the clear winner. I saw some people saying that Cruz was you know, robbed, that the scores were too wide, blah, blah, blah. Two judges had it, 98 to 92. One judge had it 97 to 93. Those scores felt okay to me. 97, 93 seemed very logical and reasonable. Um, but the fact that it was a wide scoring uh, in terms of the official scores does not mean it was not competitive in each and every round. You can have a competitive, I've said this before, every round could be close and competitive, but one person is winning those rounds. And when you add it all up, it could be an eight, you know, nine, 10 rounds to nothing kind of fight. That does not mean it was not competitive in each round. That was the kind of fight this was, where Serrano clearly was winning the majority of the rounds, but each round was competitive. Um, and frankly, by the time the fight got into the late rounds, it actually wasn't that competitive. She was winning the rounds pretty handily. Cruz had heart. She was tiring from all the blood flowing. Uh, what a what a tremendous battle, though. So Credit that's where both, the, the, the folks can't see it, but I'll tip my hat to both of them right uh, now. You are tipping your hat. And the thing I wanted to interject while you were saying that, is she was valiant, Erica Cruz, from Mexico. We had the whole Puerto Rico-Mexico thing working, which that's a big rivalry thing. I get that. But by the time, and again, folks, you probably have seen photos or video of this. This was graphic, tons of blood, not a small cut. By the time we got to the sixth or the seventh round, I was actually texting you, and I was in communication yeah. with somebody else, saying we're talking about blood transfusion type stuff with how much blood she's lost and how gross this is. And then we get into what realistic chance do you have to win the fight in the eighth round or the ninth round or the too much less the 10th round with all the blood flowing. People uh, should and, understand, TJ, yeah, oh. by the way, it, the cut itself, I don't believe was a dangerous cut from the standpoint like if you have a swollen eye or a broken bone or something like that. Because there's not a lot of padding on your forehead or on your hairline, those cuts always look worse than they actually are because the blood flows so freely. The veins are close to the skin. I mean, I can get into the whole detail that that, that, that type of laceration is going to bleed and look way, way worse. So I didn't I didn't think that the fight needed to be stopped. And the corner did a pretty good job of closing it between rounds. But every time Serrano would hit her. Right. You know, there's nothing you can do in that, um, you know, and it just starts to flow. And just so the, the the referee, Ricky Gonzalez, did a good job. He did call the timeout right before the sixth round. He did it again before the ninth round just to make sure uh, to have the doc check it out. And 
again, I, I believe that the cut looked way worse than it actually was, but the amount of blood was grotesque. I mean, I don't, I don't I, know. It was like a horror movie, you know. I agree with you, and I don't know what the update is, but it would not surprise me with the amount. I mean, she easily. I'm not a doctor. She easily lost a pint or two of blood with the extreme blood flow going every which direction. They're trying to stop it. It's all over her face. It's all over Serrano. Because another thing they were doing, not just punches, is they were clinching or getting in close or heads close together. And she's bleeding all over her off the top of her head by leaning her head down. Um, and so I, I was just concerned at that point that it's almost too, too I needless, mean, I, too needless in the ninth a, and tenth round. Yeah. I posted a photo from uh the match room photographer I know is Ed, Ed Mulholland, who does a fantastic job. So a uh, tip of the hat to Ed. He's been shooting ringside pictures for many years. He did it for HBO. He's done it for various promoters. He's doing it now for Matchroom. He has a shot of Erica Cruz, uh, you know, with her gloves up, ready to throw a punch, and her face is just covered in blood. I, You know, that's the epitome of, and I posted this, you don't play boxing type of photo. I mean. Uh, Horror movie. You're right. She, she, movie. she lost her WBC title, but uh, – she showed as much heart as I've seen in a boxing match from any man or woman, frankly, for a very long time. And Serrano did the same thing because, you know, even though she won the fight and the scores are wide, it wasn't like she came out of that fight without taking a lot of punches from a pretty good puncher in Erica Cruz. So, uh, you know, in terms of the, uh, you know, I don't know if she's a heavy puncher, but she certainly landed a lot of shots is what I'm trying to say. And uh, listen, we, we, we have seen in just the last year, Serrano, by, oh, just Serrano herself, forget about the other talented women that have been in good matchups. Uh, just her in terms of the fight that he had Saturday. And then if you go back to the fight last April, when she challenged for the undisputed lightweight title against Katie Taylor was probably the greatest women's fight we've ever seen. And we should probably cut to the chase here in the ring after the fight, as was expected. They had formally announced that May 20th, Erica, I mean, uh, that uh, Amanda Serrano will go to Ireland and she will rematch with Katie Taylor. Uh, in the sequel of their fantastic fight. They don't have an exact venue in Ireland. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. But May 20th is the date. I mean, I hope Serrano is ready because she had a tough fight. It's a pretty quick turnaround. Well, and again, um, we've been anticipating that one. That's the most money to be made, and Serrano deserves that. Um, just, just as you were saying that, too, for the Big Fight Weekend website, we have access to all these different photos. And so I have access to the photo link from Matchroom Boxing and the Ed Mulholland photos, and I got to tell you, I was squeamish looking at most <laughs> of the photos and I'm sitting there from an editorial standpoint, Dan, going, "We, I, I just I got to be careful on what we're putting out there on being just too over the top graphic, because a lot of these photos he has, it was the fight. And if you were watching, I get it. You would get squeamish to use your word again. But I'm looking at some of these photos going, we can't put that on the front of the website. It looks like a, a poster for a horror movie is what it looks like. So some of that was uh, was graphic. Serrano survives. Uh, to win, and again, uh, I saw Dan Canobio, our buddy in the CompuBox people, put this out there, that that was the most ever punches uh, thrown combined in a women's fight of any kind, a title fight, we should specify, because they don't they don't CompuBox rate every single fight out there everywhere all time. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it's too vast. However, the most combined punches ever, it is, it is also the most landed punches ever in any fight they've gone through. And remember that these are two-minute rounds, not 10-minute rounds. Both of them three, threw three, close three. to a... They don't, uh, do, they don't do 10-minute rounds. Not 10-minute rounds. I'm sorry. 10-round <laughs> fight, two-minute rounds, not three-minute rounds. So you're right, talking okay. about... You're talking about 10 minutes less of action, yet they both almost threw a thousand and they both landed over 600 punches combined in the fight. They, they I mean... 
It was a ton of action. I give Cruz credit that she was firing back. The 10th round, they're wailing on each other, just like the Katie Taylor-Amanda Serrano fight. So you got you got a lot from that. You got your money's worth from that. Serrano gets the win, and let's get on to the Katie Taylor uh, rematch, which should have a lot of buildup, and we'll see if Serrano can avenge that loss. Now, on the undercard, a couple of other fights, including Alicia Baumgartner becomes undisputed at 130 pounds, the one weight class, class above, defeats her French uh, opponent who she had down and I thought was on the verge of stopping in round number three. We'll reference for the first of a couple of times the Bet US show. You and I on Friday host the Bet US boxing show. I thought our under over was in jeopardy and I thought we were both going to get 86 on a Baumgartner KO, but um, the opponent hung in there to her credit and it ended up being a distance fight. All right. So, what are your thoughts on that and the rest of the card? Well, that this is the moment where you need to tell people that Rayfield's eight and zero for the weekend, and stretching yes. back to again twelve and zero. Yes, uh, but I should also fun. I should also say that Rayfield was very close to being zero for two as Reeves was on the Baumgartner fight because both of us had decision, both of us had the over, and she almost knocked her out in the third well, round. This doesn't she matter. Just, all I know, I'm with you, all I know is the all I know is the you. bell rang and she had her hand raised and we cashed. We did. Yes, that is true. But, but anyway, uh, thoughts. So her, her opponent Elham Mekalad. From France, tough as nails. Uh, she showed a lot of heart in that third round. She could have been out of there. You know, Baumgartner's interesting from this standpoint. She's she looks like she's in great condition. Uh, she's obviously got some power behind those punches. Uh, she she's lands pretty well. I mean, when she won her first title, she starched Terry uh, Harper with one shot. Basically, um, she had uh, Nekalad hurt bad in the third round, and I've seen her other fights where she's knocked girls out. Um, but she also tends to like punch herself out pretty easily so her con- her conditioning obviously is good because she can go the 10 rounds but she she needs to take a little breather to get her her, her win back but different than maybe like a serrano and a cruiser just were like windmills you know throwing non-stop for the entire <laughs> fight right. so when she had the chance to maybe get uh get the knockout i felt like maybe she let her off the hook just a little bit because she was a little winded she was gassed and she admitted that after the fight uh you know when you're throwing that many punches you do get tired and she's uh you know, admitting that. So that's something she could work on. I mean, she's now undisputed in the junior lightweight division. She obviously had won her first belt against Harper. Uh, then if you go back to this past October, she had the big win in a close competitive fight, split decision over Michaela Mayer to win the third belt. She went in there on Saturday and uh, and beat uh, McCullough for the fourth belt, which was vacant at the time. So she can now say she's undisputed. So you have now in women's boxing, just in a very tight, group of divisions undisputed at featherweight with Serrano undisputed at junior lightweight with Baumgartner and undisputed at lightweight with uh, Katie Taylor. So obviously Taylor and, and Serrano are going to rematch. It kind of leaves Baumgartner out of there because her big fight could have been Serrano to go up and challenge her for undisputed at 130, or for her to go up and challenge, be the one to challenge Taylor at 135. I think if Baumgartner had her way, she would have loved to see uh, Serrano get upset because it would have put her in the driver's seat. Uh, for that fight. And also there's an undisputed champion at 140. I think if I'm not mistaken with uh, Chantel with uh, got all the belts there too. So Chantel Cameron. Yes. Yeah. Chantel. Exactly. So Chantel Cameron. So here's the thing though, TJ, I just, and there may be, and Calissa is undefeated, undisputed at, at a, at super middle or a middleweight. And she was super middleweight. She was, uh, she had had unified. She had been undisputed at 154. My point is in women's boxing, undisputed is a common thing, relatively speaking. And the guys still can't figure that shit out. 
Agreed. Or their promoters, I should say. Their now, what's interesting, what's interesting is Michaela Mayer was in attendance, and I <clears> saw a couple of pre-fight interviews with her. I don't think they talked to her on the DAZN show, but I saw a couple of social media pre-fight interviews. And one of the things she said, and, and this was not an accident that she was there, <clears> one of the things she said is, well, things have turned interesting because Baumgartner keeps saying she doesn't want a rematch, she doesn't want a rematch, but now she's saying she wants a rematch. And she and, and Michaela Mayer said, and now we are talking. That was on one of the interviews. Now we are talking. So I believe that's now the logical next fight probably sure. uh, uh, for the most money. If you're Baumgartner, you want to make the most money, that rematch is the logical next fight for her. As well, impressive the good, as the she's now been. For, the good thing for Baumgartner and for Michaela is, Baumgartner was the co-feature on this card on Saturday. When she and Michaela had their unification in October, they were the co-feature when Storano, uh, when uh, Clarissa Shields had the undisputed fight against Savannah Marshall. Right. Uh, if Baumgartner and Michaela rematch, I'd, I'd be quite frankly just absolutely shocked if it wasn't the main event of that event. Whether it's a DAZN fight or they go on, you know, uh, with uh, ESPN because Michaela is with top rank, regardless of which broadcaster would carry that event i'd have to think it's the main event no doubt about it um so that would probably be the most uh attractive fight for her from a competition standpoint from a money standpoint from a uh amount of publicity that she would get there's other good fights she could make i mean listen if 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 katie taylor wasn't fighting against uh serrano wouldn't you want to see serrano against Baumgartner? or like i said Baumgartner against taylor but she's the odd woman out at the moment she has to wait until that dust clears, and then maybe she can get an opportunity to fight the winner of that fight uh, for either one of their belts. And in the meantime, what's wrong with doing the Michaela rematch? That, that there's a lot of heat behind it. They don't particularly care for one another. But look, Baumgartner fought a good fight. She she dominated. I mean, it's in a similar sense. It wasn't as quite action-packed as, obviously, the main event was. But even though Baumgartner won the fight dominating, I'm looking at the scores here, 99-89 twice and 98-90, obviously reflective of the two knockdowns. That fight was not, if you, again, you look at the scores, you think, oh, it was a wipeout. Well, no, if you watch the 10 rounds, it wasn't a wipeout. Yeah, she dominated the third round and scored the two knockdowns, fair enough. And she won some other rounds uh, in pretty dominating fashion. But there was also some rounds in there, A, that Nicole had won, and B, that even if she didn't win the round, they were competitive rounds. And Baumgartner will be the first to admit that, that this woman pushed her uh, to the brink in many, in many ways. So, listen. That was a good night of boxing, especially if you're the, a fan of women's boxing. You had two compelling fights that turned out to be highly entertaining in the ring. Put the wide nature of the scorecards aside. It does not illustrate the entertainment value or the excitement level of the show. Uh, and, you know, to all four of the women that came to fight, they did what they said. They got their gloves on and they threw it down. And it was a it was a lot of fun to watch, I have to say. It was entertaining. We wrote about it there on the Big Fight Weekend website and Dan as well on his Substack about it, and, and deservedly so. Action-packed. Uh, also on that card, give me a quick take. Uh, Richardson Hitchens, uh, also victorious. I did not see this one because I was out doing other things on Saturday and had not gotten in. And by the way, uh, you and I are big college basketball people. You in particular are a Duke person. I, I also lean a little bit towards Duke because I loved Coach K, as many did. And Duke was playing North Carolina, by the way, while the preliminary fights were going <laughs> on. So I did send you the Let's Go Duke text uh, as yes. well. And Carolina did win in college basketball action. So that was going on around the same time as the Hitchens fight. All I know is on social media, my man Rayfield, you were not quite Duke from Rocky Four with throw the towel, throw the towel uh, there on Drago and Apollo Creed. But you were close. You were like, what are we doing here? 
with this undercard yes. fight with the opponent just taking a beating. Bowza, is that how you say the name correctly? Do I yes. or Bowza? He, he John was pu- he was punching bag material from what I can gather and from what you were tweeting. Hitchens got the win, but this should have been stopped long, long before it got where it got. In my opinion, absolutely. So look, Richardson Hitchens is an outstanding prospect. He was an Olympian for Haiti, which is where his uh, family is from. But he's a New Yorker. He had he turned pro under Floyd Mayweather's promotion. Uh, he, they got him to a certain level. The contract ended. He was not as busy as he hoped to be. They parted ways. He signed with uh, the manager Keith Connolly. He then uh, Connolly then made a deal with Matchroom Boxing. They signed him. He had his first fight for Eddie Hearn back in November uh, on the undercard of the Montana Love fight where that craziness with Stevie Spark with the backflip, you know, when he got shoved over the rope out of the ring. But he had a good victory on that uh, card with an eighth-round knockout against Yomar Alamo. And so now he's back home fighting John Bowza. John Bowza was an undefeated New Yorker uh, by Puerto Rican background who had been released from top rank because not because he was you know losing fights, he was undefeated, but they were not going to agree, you know, in a similar, similar situation to what happened with Berlanga. They just were in disagreement over the direction of the career. In any event, Bowza, who had known Hitchens, they had sparred together. Uh, they're in that same group. They also had sparred and known Shakur Stevenson, you know, came up in the amateurs together. Anyway, they made what I thought was a pretty compelling match going in, even though I thought Hitchens was definitely the more talented fighter, the more versatile fighter, the guy that could do more in the ring. And I didn't think he was going to beat him to oblivion the way he did. Uh, but John Bowser showed tremendous balls and tremendous heart, got his got battered and beaten as bad as you'll see in a non-knockout fight. He got knocked down twice. And so your point about my tweets and my reference was at some point, the competition has been decided. It's no longer a competitive fight. Now, in boxing, there's always the small chance, however you want to define the percentage, where a guy could land one haymaker and win the fight. And that's one of the attractions of boxing, because unlike other sports, baseball, you can't hit a five run homer to win in basketball. You can't hit, you know, a five point shot you can get four on a foul on a three-pointer but you can't if you're down five you can't win with one shot in football you can't get a seven point hail mary or an eight point hail mary in boxing or mma you can lose every single second of the fight and with one second left you can score one punch and knock your opponent out the chances of that happening however are very very small and when you've taken as much fucking punishment as john bowser took so Amen. This is not, my, my, my rant here is not in anything negative about Bowser. This man left his heart in the ring and showed everything he could do and took a beating and uh, and never stopped trying. But it's not up to him. His corner was derelict in their duty. The referee was worse. And what pissed me off the most was this is the New York Commission, which has had tremendous amount of bad situations take place. Publicity, they wish they could get back. Millions of dollars in in uh, judgments against them in the Muhammad Abdesalamov case where they were charged with negligence. I felt they were negligent in what their duties were to take care and protect the health and safety of the fighter. And I say that because they went through, especially after the Abdesalamov uh, situation. Now, he didn't die, but he was uh, he's still alive, but his life is over as he knew it. Uh, I was ringside for that fight. Uh, it wasn't a matter of them stopping the fight. It was the care that they were, the lack of care that they showed for him after the fight. But this was the case where when that happened they changed a lot of their protocol so when you watch new york fights and it pisses some fans off you know there's a lot of time when a guy gets knocked down walk to me go to the side go to the right. side they have the doctor stop when the when the when the round starts they have them come up and check them and it's a whole big thing and it you know it takes away uh the time from the opponent that's winning so they did all that shit with john bowser 
but they didn't fucking stop the fight when he's getting pummeled. I mean, TJ, I'm not talking about, I know. Uh, you know, he's losing on points. I'm talking about taking crazy, clean, time and time again headshots, and they were oblivious. Charlie First of all, Fitch, all right, let me interject. Hold on, First, he's usually he's usually a good referee. He just was oblivious to the punishment. The corner was oblivious. There you the go. The doctor was checking him out, and they wouldn't even stop it. I, I didn't understand it. I got you. But first of all, fundamentally, his own corner and his own people around him have to step in and have to be willing to do it. Then the failsafe is the commission in the corner has to say to the referee, this is over with. It is a brutal one-sided fight. And whether you are out to lunch on how many clean shots he's taking or whatever, you need to stop this fight. As we've discussed uh, in the past, it is ultimately up to the referee to stop the fight. But, you know, somebody should have gotten in there. And I was just thinking of this when you said this, the Yerbasa Nuli fight with David Morrell that we've talked about at length and you've written about at length was a similar kind of thing, taking a beating, not a dramatic you know, big moment knockdown. Do we stop it then or not? But an absorption and accumulation of a ton of punches, and you had a near death situation, kind of similar to what was apparently brewing here in New York, in New York, with Bowza of, okay, the fight is now over. And what if he's got a brain, you know, bruise, a hemorrhage? What if he's got the swelling on the brain after this kind of beating when it's obvious he didn't have a chance to win? Is and and Bowser I'm with you. On that. He has swelling on his eye. But here's the other thing about it, okay? This is not the heavyweight championship. This is not a multi-million dollar kind of, of fight. This is a 10-round preliminary fight with an undefeated young fighter. John Bowser is 24 years old. If he takes a loss by a stoppage on his feet in like the sixth or seventh round when they should have stopped this fight, his career is not over. You know, does he take a step back? Obviously. But does he suddenly have to retire? No. But now I'm not sure, sure he ever comes back the same after the kind of shellacking he took. And Richardson Hitchens, can't blame him. He was doing his job. He's 25 years old. He has aspirations of a world championship. He's right. in a good trajectory. And by the way, just to follow up on Richardson's career, I don't know what's going to become of John Bowser after that destruction. But now, and I, I talked to uh, Richardson Hitchens' manager, Keith Conley, today, which is Sunday as we tape this, what they uh, think will happen next is uh, – because he's with Matchroom Boxing, Montana Love, even though he's coming off a DQ loss, is with uh, Matchroom also. They would they're they're going to try to make a fight for this summer against Montana Love. Hitchens against Montana Love is an interesting fight, and then he made the point: if we go and take care of that fight, what they now I don't know. This won't necessarily happen. It's what they want. Now there's a big difference between what you want and what you get. They would like to try to make a fight, which would probably be a big New York fight between Hitchens and Tiafimo Lopez, who I think know each other from the amateurs, two New York fighters, uh, you know, that would be, you know, both guys, you know, in the 140-pound weight class, Lopez with the two wins since moving on, Hitchens is still undefeated. Both were Olympians. Um, I mean, so that's their plan. Now, whether Lopez would be game for that, I don't know. But I do think that the fight between Hitchens and Montana Love has a pretty reasonable chance to happen. That's a fight Matchroom, I think, wants to make. I'm sure it's a fight that the zone would embrace, uh, which would be the broadcaster of that fight. So for Hitchens' part, he looked very good. He did his thing. He did everything you can do except get a knockout. John Bowser showed all the heart in the world, got a hard head. And, and the New York Commission, once again, uh, they did a disservice to the to the, to the the fighter last night. That and the referee in charge, but most importantly, Bowser's corner has got to be there. And you gotta, you got to analyze what are these guys doing uh, when their fighter's taking a beating like that. Okay, let's move on. Uh, we've gone for a while without mentioning Emmanuel Navarrete and Liam Wilson. 
as much as the Serrano Cruz fight, highly entertaining ladies world title fight. I thought this one was more entertaining, more dramatic, because we very nearly had Navarrete suffer a knockout loss, possibly could have. He got knocked down. He was in trouble. It ends up being a Navarrete rally. We have controversy with a long count, not just a long count, but a ridiculous, needless delay in resuming the action that has nothing to do with the count. Uh, and there should be there should be some scrutiny and there should be some reprimand on how that was done. I'm going to get into that with you. But give me your thoughts on a very game Australian, Liam Wilson, who had never fought outside of Australia, had an upset in the making. But then Navarrete wore him down and eventually stopped him. Wild fight. Navarrete gets the win in the world title win. Dan, your thoughts? Well, first of all, Navarrete gets the win. He is now a three-division uh, world title holder. He has won world titles as a junior featherweight, as a featherweight, now as a junior lightweight. He still owns the WBO's featherweight title. So in the, in the next you know couple of weeks, he'll have to make a decision whether he's going to retain uh, the 130-pound title or give that up and and continue to defend his title 126. I think, obviously, given his weight issues, uh, there's virtually zero chance he will retain the featherweight title. He will just take the WBO's 130-pound uh, title, which would, by by that occurring, will make uh, the forthcoming fight between uh, Robesi Ramirez, uh, you know, when he gets back in the in action. Uh, I forget who he's fighting. Robesi Ramirez, they'll fight for the uh, for the vacant interim title. Right. Um, when, when, when originally it was supposed to be for the vacant. Uh, it was it's, it's technically, at the moment, it's for the interim title. But by the time the fight comes around, you know, in the next bit, it'll end up being for the vacant full title. Because as I said, I do suspect that uh, without question, you'll see uh, Navarrete give up that title. Like he's had, he had so much trouble making um, the weight for his fight in the last defense against Baez. Uh, there's no chance he's going to hang on to it. Was supposed to fight is, is supposed to fight Isaac Dogbay. And you believe Correct. now it will be for the world title. Yes. Uh, because so that, not, that fight is, that fight is on April 1st. So there's, there's by the time April 1st comes around, that will be in, in, in past the, the time limit that the WBO will give to Navarrete to make his decision. So as I said, in the next couple of weeks, he will formally make that, uh, you know, uh, declaration to the WBO again, unless something crazy happens, he's giving up the 126 pound, 126 pound title which again will make that April 1st fight between Ramirez and Dog Bay for the vacant title. Currently it's for the interim title, but who, you know, whatever they'll fight for the interim title, uh, but it'll end up being for the full title. But as far as Navarrete's performance goes, you know, again, he didn't look like he was in the greatest shape I've ever seen, to be honest with you. I mean, he's has all these problems. He's one of these guys I think is going to have problems making weight, no matter what division he's in. If you tell him the weight limit's 130, he's going to struggle. If you tell him it's 135, he'll probably struggle. If you told him it was 126, he's going to struggle, but he's a freakish puncher. Uh, with the angles he throws out, with the activity, yep. and uh, he just he just figures out a way to get the job done. On that point, Timothy Bradley on the broadcast, again, a Hall of Fame caliber fighter, world champion, uh, said, this is adversity because of your training. He goes, you didn't run that, I'm paraphrasing, you didn't run that extra mile every day, every week, you didn't spar enough, and this is where it comes back on you. In a firefight like this, where you're not in great shape, you didn't take it as seriously as you want, and right now it's flashing in front of you. I'm paraphrasing what Bradley said. It's flashing in front of you. You didn't train hard enough. So maybe that will be a wake-up call. I will say this. 
I thought Navarrete showed more in that fight Friday night in Glendale, Arizona, than he showed in any other victory that he has had because he was on the verge of losing in that fourth round. And he was hurt again, buzzed and hurt again in the sixth round and still found a way to win. He was he was in jeopardy of, of being a massive upset loser, a 14 to one upset, upset loser. loser. He yeah. was in almost on the same, not quite the same situation because he wasn't as badly hurt. But in the previous fight against uh, Baez, he yeah. also looked terrible. He was down on the scorecards until he scored a one-punch knockout. Look, I'll say this about Navarrete. He's a joy to watch. He's mm-hmm. tremendously fun, exciting fighter. But everybody should just enjoy him for now because he ain't going to be around for a long at the top of the heap. I mean, just based on his uh, training habits and, and and the way he gets hit and the way he uh, goes about his business, uh, you know, I don't see him long, for the long haul as a top fighter still still though we're like i understand at 130 but we've seen him for four years now in championship fights say what you want about competition fight in and fight out he's had some main event fights he's won by knockout he's had a good career but you're talking about to be elite you're talking about to be one of the best to be maybe a a unified or undisputed champion you know fighting the best i get that uh on that point let's go back to the thing yeah yeah, the main thing was it was a terrific fight i mean yeah you're hard-pressed i if you tell me that over the last two weeks you like better be of yard best, or if you told me you like Navarrete and, and Wilson best, or you told me you like uh, Serrano and Cruz best, I, I, it's hard to argue. I had three real bona fide candidates that will be maybe in the conversation at the end of the year, and they all happen within two weeks of each other. And, you know, in the case of uh, Navarrete and Liam Wilson, as great of a fight it was, you know, it might not have been the best fight of the weekend, but it was a fantastic fight. Um you know, Liam Wilson, all credit to him also. This guy showed a huge amount of heart, as you said. Came over here, a lot of confidence, brought his family with him from uh, from Australia. We detailed on the on the preview podcast about the crazy travel that he did to make sure he was available for the fight by uh, going to Washington, D.C. to train with Barry Hunter in his headbangers gym uh, where you don't mess around. You get great sparring in a place like that. He wanted to test himself the week or so he had to take off. Not take off camp. I'm sure he worked out when he was in uh, uh, the U.K., but he had to go to London to deal with his visa, come back to Washington, finish camp, then go get another, uh, you know, five-plus hours to get the, to, uh, to to Glendale. I think one of his team members had said, and I wrote this in one of my pieces, that if you take into account the travel from Australia to Washington to London back and to D.C., then over to Glendale. He traveled, it was like something like 19,000 miles Yes, uh, to be in this fight. And you know what? He acquitted himself well. And even though he lost and it hurts and it sucks when you lose, this is a fight that he will be more known for than any of his other fights in his, in his entire career, whether it's the victories or the other previous defeat that he had. And he's in a position now where, you know, he'd love to be the world champion uh, of the WBO at 130 pounds. But even though he's not, the, the, the silver lining, if you will, is he absolutely will get another opportunity against somebody in a bigger fight. Uh, I know top rank would be happy to work with him again. I mean, he has his promoter, uh, George Rose, Rose from the UK. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, it's from Australia. Um, but I'm sure if, if he, they were amenable to doing something that uh, they could have another opportunity on one of the big ESPN cards um, or, or some other promoter would be out there looking at him and say, this kid, you know, good personality, uh, fought his heart out, great performance against a quality opponent. No reason we can't have him in another fight uh, against another quality name. So, you know, credit to him for how he showed up. And now, of course, we got to get to the bullshit of what happened with the yeah. knockdown and, all right. and the, the long count and the mouthpiece and the fouls and all that. Let's get into Let, this. Where do we start on that? We're going, let's start. So let's we've start. With... We've discussed the fight. We're yeah. now going to a, a small section of round number four. Uh, yeah, round number four. Round number four, where Liam Wilson very nearly 
uh, was on the verge of the upset. He was on the verge maybe of the upset, maybe a punch or two away from getting a stoppage, depending on what your viewpoint or what your opinion is. So he scores a knockdown with Navarrete clearly hurt. It was initially a left beautiful hook, right hand. Left hook kind of caught him, then a booming right caught him, and Navarrete's flopping around, hurt, uh, and in big trouble, and for the first time in his career goes down from another right hand, goes down uh, onto the ground. That's when Chris Flores, the referee, comes in and look we've had famous incidents of long counts in boxing history the most the most famous one is the jack here we go in the big time nostalgia the jack dempsey gene tunney long count fight which is a hundred years ago where clearly the referee took forever uh counting because dempsey wasn't in a neutral corner and it helped tunney recover get up and eventually win a decision very famously in the Tyson-Douglas fight, the Tyson camp believed that their knockdown earlier in the fight was a slow count by the referee that he should have counted quicker. And because he didn't, Douglas beat the count and Douglas eventually scored the famous upset knockout. I would submit just on that one while I'm pontificating for a second, Douglas was looking at the referee from like the count of four the entire time. He could have gotten up. Whenever he wanted to get up, and he did get up before the count. He was waited until he said eight or whatever, and he got yep, up. So he got up. The, All right, this the Tyson one is manufactured bullshit. The well, Dempsey one is legit. The okay. one I'm thinking of, and Go it's ahead. not so much a long count, but it's very reminiscent of what we're about to talk about with the fumbling around and the mouthpiece coming out or being thrown out or taken out and all that shit is the very famous Diego Corrales yes. Luis Jose Luis Castillo fight one, where Castillo had been down twice spit or took out or had it knocked out however you want to uh, describe it and got a lot of extra time to have it put back in the uh, referee tony weeks took a point away and it looked like castillo is uh about to stop corrales who's in bad shape he's been down twice and what happens in the final moments of that fight in the 10th round he comes back and scores one of the most uh craziest comebacks not just in boxing history in my opinion but in all of sports history uh, maybe i'm slightly biased because i was ringside and i'll never forget mm -hmm. that as long as i live was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, period. But uh, kind of what was going on with this situation, not nearly as dramatic, however. Now, in that in that case, Corrales had spit the mouthpiece out before and had been warned, don't do that to create a delay, and then he did it again. And that's where the penalty happened, and then Joe Goose On the knockdown, by the way. He right. took it out. He, I mean, to give the late Diego Corrales uh, his, his point of view, and I remember him talking about this with us uh, a few days after the fight, because he was having trouble breathing, took right. the mouthpiece out to get the to get some wind, and because your boxing glove, you're not supposed to be able to manipulate like fingers or thumbs or hands. It went into his glove and it fell out of his glove onto the canvas. You can believe it or not, that's his story, uh, what it was at the time. Right. But the nonetheless, theater. it took time. For sure did. Put the sure did. In. And then, of course, very famously, Joe Goosen's on the apron now giving him advice. And the whole reason these rules are in you gotta place. You got to say the quote, TJ. You got to say the quote. You better effing get inside now on him, right? Well, I'll Something. say the quote because if you don't, yeah. you better fucking get, in, get inside on him now. <laughs> and what did <laughs> he do? He got fucking he did, inside and, on him. And he did. He knocked it. him out. All right. So, but the whole reason these rules are in place is so that you don't purposely delay while you're hurt and or bring the corner in to wash your mouthpiece off, blah, 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 blah. All right. So take me through what you saw, because what I saw was something that I'm doing this on purpose took forever. And because he took forever, Flores, the referee, he allowed Navarrete to recover for 10 or more seconds that he shouldn't. OK, that's 10 seconds. Shouldn't have been allowed to recover. My thought. All right. 
it took too long to get the fight going yet. I agree with that. So if you take it from the, I've seen some videos where they time it out. It's like 27 seconds from the time he hits the deck till the time the fight resumes. But to me, that's a red herring because you hear 27 seconds. That's a lot of extra time. But here's the reality. First of all, there's the, the count that, you know, the mandatory eight count that's going to be part of that 27 seconds. And then as we discussed in the fight in New York city and in other locations, the referee within the rules, his obligation his right. The normal things in boxing, wipe off the gloves, perhaps. Are you okay? Take a step towards me, step to the side, whatever the commands are, that's going to eat up another seven or eight seconds without question. Now, the, the problem here is that the mouthpiece, whether it got punched out, he took it out, he took it out on purpose, it came out by accident. The, the bottom line is the mouthpiece is out. The referee's obligation in that moment is to replace the mouthpiece. So that's going to be a couple extra seconds. The problem was that Chris Flores, the referee, and I don't think he did this on purpose in the heat of the moment, is when he went to stick the mouthpiece back in. And, and to Chris Flores' defense, he didn't go to the corner, take up extra time and have him try to rinse it out. He took it off the mat and was going to just stuff it back in his mouth, whether there was, you know, germs on it or whatever. I mean, it wasn't they weren't worrying about hygiene or anything like that. He took the mouthpiece himself and went to put it back in Navarrete's mouth. The problem is he did it wrong. It was like either it was like upside down. And so that took a few more seconds of fiddling around with it by the time it was lodged back in his mouth properly. That's not Navarrete's fault. And that's an, I believe, an honest mistake by the referee. So the 27 seconds to me is 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 overly dramatic if you're if you're on Liam Wilson's side of things and you're trying to make it look the best possible situation for him. Okay, now, hold on. Here's, hold on. I got to call. Hold I'm on. I'm going to stop you. Hold on. I'm going to stop. I got a few more. Hold things on. To I, 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 you can get to all of them, but I'm going to stop because there's two or three things that are wrong with what you said. The first thing is it doesn't take seven or eight seconds after you've had the eight count to say, "Walk to me. Are you ready? Let's go." You said that. Five it seconds. Does, it five doesn't seconds? take. It doesn't even take five seconds. It's like two or That's three not seconds. True. Walk That's to not me. True. Walk to me, and then let's fight. All right. He are you okay? Walk to the side. What, Watch right. a fight in California okay. or right. New York. The, the next thing is five seconds. The at next thing. Seconds. The next thing is the mouthpiece didn't just fall out. He spit it out. That's on the I replay. He then looked at his corner, and I believe his corner was yelling at him, probably in Spanish, to spit his mouthpiece out. Flores recognized that. That's why he didn't take the mouthpiece over to the corner for the delay. But the other thing is he just stood there. He almost froze and just stood there and didn't just hand him it back or put it in and say, fight, let's go. I'm, listen, took, I'm not absolving. I'm, I'm just saying, Navarrete I, I'm just saying I can't go along with, well, if you've got Wilson's point of view, it's everybody's point of view. No, it's not. That, and I'm going to tell you why. But hold on. It's everybody's point of view that he did an awful job of getting that fight back on to give Wilson a chance I, to finish him. I he don't did. know how much more I can say. I agree with you. He did not do a good job. What I was merely saying is that the, the pearl clutching about the 27 seconds is overly dramatic. In my opinion, the pearl but clutching. let me get to the let me get to the <laughs> other right, part. Go of ahead. It. Yes, it was handled poorly by the way the referee did it. Couple things: a, I don't think it was done in a purposeful manner to help somehow Navarrete get the win, or to give him extra time. First of all, that's my opinion. Second of all, and this is very important: if you watch the replay, before he got hit with the shot that put him on the deck completely, where he's down, down, down. William Wilson hit him with a punch while his gloves were on the mat. He was down. He hit the man while he was down. That is a disqualification penalty at the worst 
at the minimum, uh, uh, the, the point deduction. I saw you put, wait, wait, let I me finish. You put let that me finish. on social let media, and I don't buy that, that it's disquantifiable. I don't give a shit if you buy it. Go watch the video. I've his, seen his the video. Were, but... I'm not done. His hands were on the mat, number one. And number two, he punched him behind the head. Another foul. So Liam Wilson committed two fouls in that situation. So again, tit for tat. It's a fucking fight. Okay, it is ain't checkers. It is ain't backgammon. They're not playing fucking shuffleboard. So I'm not absolving the spitting of the mouthpiece or the shitty job that Chris Flores did. But this Liam Wilson, uh, in his situation, he's got some uh, explaining to do also because he hit the man while he was down, not on purpose. He also hit him behind the head. I don't think he hit him in the behind the head. I think he hit him on the side of the head. I think he hit him on the side of the head. Behind the head. I watch it back a thousand times. And he hit him clearly, clearly when Navarrete's glove was on the mat. So you can bitch and moan all you want about the 27 count and blah, 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 blah. But all I know is that the man got hit behind the head and had his gloves on the fucking mat, and that's a foul also. So again, as they say in basketball, no harm, no foul, play on. And so to me, <laughs> tit for tat. And that all happened within the same you know segment of the fight in that same sequence. So to me, it's all uh, a lot of uh, nonsense. Again, it's a fight. It's not perfect. It's what leads to the drama and why we're talking about it. It leads to the lore of boxing. We still talk about the shit I that like you mentioned. This. I, I'd like this. About the 100, 100 years ago with of Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney. Yes. You know, right, I, li- I like the back and forth. You're, crank, you're cranked up. I like the back and forth on this. Now, let's say this. Navarrete was not down on a knee. He was not down on the seat of his pants. And we've seen guys hit somebody when they're completely down. He's flopping around. Wilson's trying to hit him. The glove does go on the ground, but it's not like he was kneeling there or sitting there when he got hit and and not, one that doesn't more, matter one more important you are point. you are upright you're on your in boxing you are up when the only thing touching the ground is the soles of your feet anything else touching the mat you're down it doesn't matter if it's your elbow your hand your knee your face whatever and let me make one other point by the way liam wilson had the opportunity, perhaps not at the end of the fourth round when the sequence unfolded. No, he did. I but was coming watch- right there. He still had 20 seconds left at the end of the fourth I'm not round. Even at that. And, he did, and he didn't even attack. He did not attack right now, and go try to finish it. Now go to round five, and Navarrete's legs are still all fucked up and shaky as a leaf, yep. and he doesn't even try to get him out of there. So we can we wouldn't even be talking about this if Liam Wilson had done his job and gone after Navarrete when he, he was hurt and was you know very clearly not together after the knockdown and the punishment in that for in that uh previous round and he, he wasn't able to go after him he he allowed him forget about what the referee did he basically gave Navarrete a whole round to get his shit together and was able to come back and go through the rest of the fight and score the knockout so again i'm not faulting uh either fighter i the referee did his job even if it wasn't very well but it was none of this was on purpose shit happens when the punches start flying and so to claim that somehow liam wilson was robbed of a win I just don't buy it because of all the things I just mentioned. And that is my story, and I'm sticking to it forever. I always love the back and forth, and especially when we get heated about this, and it was that good of a fight. And by the way, Wilson hurt him a second time in the sixth round and had him wobbled and couldn't finish him then. However, Wilson hadn't been in a world championship fight like this. He's nine or 10,000 miles away from home. He's been through all that you told him that he's been through. And I thought he he battled and Navarrete showed the heart like some of the other great Mexican champions. I'm not saying he's Julio Cesar Chavez. I'm not saying he's Oscar or Canelo. But when those guys have gotten knocked down before or hurt before, they come roaring back. And it's a grueling, bra- brawling battle. And that's what Navarrete did. He eventually wore him down. He eventually well, stopped and by him. the way, yes. Yeah, he he so he survived that situation that we just talked about. 
And again, Liam Wilson had every opportunity to continue with a hurt man in front of him to get him out of there. He didn't do it. Navarrete got himself together. He came on like a train going downhill without the brakes, won all the rounds, uh, you know, after that situation, pretty much. After uh, the sixth, knocked, yes. Yeah, knocked him down, uh, was punishing him in the ninth round, uh, was laying a beating on him, and the referee had no choice but to stop the fight at that point. And if you watch, there was no argument from Liam Wilson or his corner when the when the when the fight was ended, if I'm not mistaken, at the moment that Flores was stepping in to stop the fight, it appeared as though that the Wilson corner was about to throw in the towel anyway. So, you know, it was it was a legitimate uh, win and it was a tremendous fight. And yes, we'll talk about some of the minor controversy, but I, I don't think it's as massive as as some of the people on Twitter would lead you to believe it did not cost him the fight i am in complete agreement with that it cost him the opportunity in that moment to hit a more hurt fighter and he still had an opportunity to hit him that's important to point out he still had 20 seconds left in the round to come hit and him, the whole fifth even round after all that. i got together. you i got you so it did not cost him the opportunity to end the fight completely he had an opportunity to end the fight all right i will say one more thing by the way for all that went on and for the multi multi millions that flow every direction for top rank they should give liam wilson a little bonus a little stipend for flying all over the place to be part of that fight give him 25 grand or 50 grand to cover his travel or whatever he deserves that for the way for the way the heart that he showed give him a little bonus uh that he even flew his you saw this on the broadcast uh, and for the fans that didn't maybe hear it he flew his wife and his two small children uh there to be their ringside um his uh his father had long ago passed away his family's important to him his mother's watching live back in australia it was quite the little story that they that they spun and he was on the verge of a 14 to 1 upset potentially uh, before being beaten so tremendous fight all right real quick it was a great fight by the way by, i mean i mean i know we we're disagreeing about the, the the situation with the knockdown and all but listen both guys fought their hearts out that's the bottom yes. line and it was a tremendous memorable fight and it should be at the end of this year a candidate i'm not saying it will even be in the top five sure. by the time we get to the end of the year but it should be a candidate for fight of the year depending on what else happens deservedly so because Again, Navarrete is somebody that top rank. They're not going to make this announcement. And ESPN, they want him to succeed. They want to have huge fights for him. This was not supposed to be a huge fight. This is just a fight. And he well, was on the verge of losing. He was on the verge of being knocked thing. out. Dramatic. Liam Wilson was not the original opponent. And we should get to right. this also. Right. He was supposed to fight Oscar Valdez. That's a big fight. Oscar Valdez suffered an injury. Oscar Valdez was there at ringside. He did an interview uh, with the broadcast. And he talked about what happened. He had fell on some wet grass and, and ended up hurting his back and broke a rib. Um, but now that he's, so he was sort of disappointed because now he's healthy and feeling good, but he just couldn't train. And, you know, he was watching Navarrete, you know, not have the greatest performance in a fight that he felt like he should be in. And uh, now that Navarrete is safely through this fight, and maybe if it, Wilson had won the fight also, uh, Valdez is next up. So probably this coming like late spring, summer, let's do it. We're going to see Valdez against Navarrete in the rescheduled fight. And by the way, if he couldn't get away from Liam Wilson's left hook, what's he going to do uh, when Oscar Valdez is raining punches? Now, I know Oscar's coming off the loss to Shakur Stevenson, <laughs> but you couldn't find two fighters with more opposite styles. Navarrete is exactly the kind of fighter that, you, that you'd want if you're Oscar Valdez, a guy that's going to be uh, defensively irresponsible and come to you as opposed to a brilliant defender who's going to counterpunch you to death the way that uh, Shakur did when they fought their unification still, last April. Still, let's make that fight, and Navarrete deserves that fight That fight by getting off the canvas to go get that win. Real quick. I mean, in my perfect situation, what they should do, and I, I'm, this is coming to me as we're talking, when they make Valdez 
uh, against Navarrete and whenever they schedule it for. I think it would be the, a great thing, actually, if they could figure out a way to get uh, Liam Wilson on that undercard in a, sure. in a solid fight and let him earn his, you know, either a rematch against Navarrete or how perhaps. About, and I thought you were going here. How about Navarrete and uh, Oscar Valdez in Mexico? Find a site in Mexico and fill an arena and no. have the atmosphere. That would be wild. There's I'm no just chance that's going to be Mexico because the money won't be there. If they're going to do that fight in, it'll either be in Southern California, Las Vegas, very possibly again in in uh, in Arizona, which is where Oscar uh, grew up and where obviously there'd be a lot of Mexican fans for Navarrete. Also, uh, virtually zero chance just based on finances that it will not be in Mexico. Interesting. This is why we have you here. All right, uh, real quick, the rest of the undercard: Arnold Barboza wins. Richard Torres did score. Does it count as it? It doesn't count as the first round because it, it was does. in between rounds when they no, stopped it. it or no, does no, it? That's K O one. As long as the bell does, because he knocked well, Ryan down, you. they rang the bell. They they but did they ring? Did they ring the bell to start no. round two, or they stopped it in between? What happened? If the the bell did not ring to start round two, right. so therefore it's the first round knockout. So Torres now, did because the, the person on the Bet US show was asking about a what was it a twenty four a minus twenty four hundred. Uh, for the first round prop for Richard Torres, the U.S. I believe the over under was first round knockout. The over under was one and a half, and it and it stayed under on that one. All right, so that was on the undercard, but uh, Barbosa wins real quick. Thought or two on that, please. Well, as I said on the Bet U.S. show, we predicted the fight. I said that Barbosa would handily outpoint Pedraza. That's exactly what he did. The scores were a little closer than I thought. Two judges had it six to four. One had it seven to three, which felt like the right score. But the bottom line was Pedraza is a little bit long in the tooth. He's still a good fighter. But if you think you're going to the world title level, you're going to get past this guy. And basically, when he steps up uh, and fights the best guys, Pedraza, at this stage of his career, he loses. So Barboza gets what, to me anyway, is the best win of his career. He outboxed uh, Pedraza. You know, he had a couple of small hiccups maybe in the middle rounds. Uh, he did very well in the beginning of the fight. But in the end, he wins the fight handily. No, no, just, you know, even if you don't like the the tightness of the scorecards, no one's disputing that it was in any way, anything other than an Arnold Barboza uh, victory. And now Arnold Barboza, look, this guy is undefeated. He's fought a number of quality opponents. He's now 28 and 0. He deserves a title opportunity. That's the bottom line. He's in a situation though, where because he doesn't have a big name, he's not this big giant ticket seller, doesn't have a huge fan base. Isn't maybe the most exciting fighter out there, even though he makes solid fights. You know, he and he doesn't bring a huge amount of money to the table. Like nobody wants to fight the guy because he doesn't bring you the riches if you win or lose. And he doesn't bring you uh, the, uh, the the exposure level and the, and the notoriety because nobody is going to have really heard of him if you fight the guy. So it's hard uh, to, to, to see him getting that shot. He's going to be a kind of fighter where someone's either going to have to step up the way Allah, and I'm going back a few years, the way Shane Mosley finally stepped up to the plate and gave Winky Wright the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Although Winky had a title at that point, even though he wasn't a big name, he had gotten that title because he was uh, in a mandatory position. Or they're going to have to put uh, Arnold Barbosa somehow figuring a way from one of the sanctioning bodies to, to get him rated number one and get a mandatory fight. Um, top rank has a number of good fighters in and around uh, the junior welterweight division. Obviously, they promote the champion, Josh Taylor. They promote Tiafimo Lopez, who's a contender who uh, Barbosa has wanted desperately for a while. Uh, they promote other fighters in and around that weight class. And so he's going to have to figure out, uh, you know, with his team, with his management, Rick Meridian. They have Jose Ramirez, who's also in the division, who's with Meridian as well. He should get some kind of opportunity. He's proven it time and again. He's again, he's he's fought some good fighters over the last several fights. 
Pedraza was the best one. He did a very good job in that fight. Props to Barboza. And by the way, if you ever get a chance to talk to Barboza or interview him, he comes off extremely well in the interviews, so he can talk up his events. I we had him on the podcast back. Yes, you uh, did. You know, a month you or two ago, him. and he was tremendous in the interview. And then that was not my first time interviewing him. He's like that. So he's a very marketable fighter, in my opinion. And uh, he just needs the, the opportunity. And he's with Top Rank, and they're good at getting their guys opportunities. Highly, highly entertaining Top Rank show for sure. From back on so, Friday. On the, just real quick on the on the Richard Torres fight. Richard Torres, of course, the heavyweight who was the silver medalist in the uh, 2020, you know, delayed Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, <laughs> I found it uh, interesting, let's say, that when his opponent James Bryant, uh, they retired on the stool after the first round. He claimed it was an ankle injury. Uh, fair enough, but obviously he had been planted on the canvas with a massive uppercut, you know, right. a few seconds before that. And I watched the replay. It didn't look like. Sometimes you see a guy get knocked down, and when they knock, they get knocked down, they fall in an awkward manner, and it somehow they suffer an ankle injury, they suffer a knee injury because of the way they fall. It did not seem as though that was the situation where he may have injured his leg or his The only thing I saw to interject is he was walking back to the corner and he limped on his left leg. Now, again, like we talked about with Dubois, the British heavyweight, when he got cracked on top of the head, he hurt his knee because he kind of got discombobulated and it, and it was awkward. Maybe it's the same kind of thing. You got lit up on the chin, and your 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 leg is awkward. You're having trouble. He he did kind of limp, but man, uh, Torres with the big uppercut, they stopped the fight, and a little hype train begins for him with the big punches yeah, and, then, and the early knockouts, which is fine. And as far as as far as the rest of the undercard goes, that was part of the ESPN part of the uh, of the streaming of it. You know, you had the next fight of uh, the uh, Nico Ali Walsh, the middleweight, who was of course the son. Of Muhammad Ali. I've heard that. I'll tell you the grandson. Thing. Right, the grandson, yes. The grandson of Muhammad Ali. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Nico Ali Walsh is going to be a future world champion, but I have to say this. I'd be, you know, it's one thing we rag on guys when they don't live up their their, their potential or they don't do what's expected. But so I'm going to keep it real. Nico Ali Walsh is getting better. I'm not saying he's going to be an elite blue chip prospect, but he is definitely a thousand percent a more improved and better fighter at this stage of his career after now uh, his, I believe his eighth, eighth victory in a row. He's now eight and oh. Uh, he went the distance in this fight against Eduardo Ayala. Not a, not a bum or anything like that. He won, you know, basically by a shutout. The kid is getting better and you can believe it or not. And, you know, you may hate on him because he's riding the, the famous last name, but he's obviously putting in the work. Now, Anybody that puts the work in, it's one thing if you are in a situation where your last name or your relations helps you get a job mm -hmm. or get in the door or whatever. But once you get that job or once you get in that door, it's now up to you to prove that. It, so it may help you get the opportunity the way it did for Nico to be on TV and have his pro debut hyped up and everything. But he's at the stage of his career now after eight fights where, yes, of course, the last name and the relations to the, you know, perhaps the greatest fighter in the history of the sport is obviously always going to be there. But if he doesn't do the work, he's going to be quickly gone. It is apparent to me and anybody that knows anything about boxing that he's doing the work. And at eight and oh, he's getting better. And that's the key. He is improving. That's all you can ask for from a young fighter. And uh, as far as the rest of the undercard, the other interesting prospect, of course, which was the very first fight of the night, was Emiliano Vargas, who was this, one of the fighting sons, the youngest of the three fighting sons of Fernando Vargas, the former junior middleweight champion. He moved to three and oh, uh, and he uh, he's going to be a, a work in progress, but he's a very young kid. He got a four round decision. Uh, in this fight, he's only 18 years old. He just had his, uh, like I said, his third professional fight, his second since signing with Top Rank. And it's a guy that you got to pay attention to him. His father's in the corner, and uh, he's he's a, uh, you know, he's he's got a good look about him. And you know, he looks like he can fight. But again, 
top rank. They have great matchmakers and, and Brad Goodman and Bruce Trampler, and they're going to have their uh, hands full trying to, you know, guide him appropriately to get him through these formative stages of his career. But he has a chance maybe because, again, the last name has given the opportunity, but it's going to be up to the kid to put the work in and to get to the point where maybe he can follow in his footsteps and become a top attraction and a, and a world champion. And but again, it's, and good, it's good to watch these guys grow up on these undercards. Exactly. And again, there's only so much the name's going to get you to your point. I agree completely with you. You got to be able to fight or not. Uh, I was thinking of Marvis Frazier, the son of Joe Frazier back in the <laughs> 80s. It's the name yes, got sir. him so far, but Larry Holmes took him out with one punch and Mike Tyson destroyed him in 30 seconds. Eventually, the name only gets you so far. Chavez Jr. got to a world title ascension. He's become much more of a knucklehead in the present day. But the name, again, is only going to get you so far the name of a of a great fighter. All right, so we've already mentioned that announced on the DAZN card is the Katie Taylor-Amanda Serrano fight. By the way, Top Rank also announced during the Friday night broadcast the official confirmation of what you had reported on, that Shakur Stevenson will be back in Newark uh, fighting again officially on, on the road to trying to get a title maybe at at lightweight down the road. By the way, can I interject something while we're just going back and forth and, and swatting people and getting aggravated? I, I didn't just hear it one time after the third time. And I almost texted you after the third time that Joe Tessitore said on the broadcast about the Navarrete championship fight, this is a belt that Shakur Stevenson vacated. Uh, somebody stopped that because he didn't vacate the belt. He lost the belt on the scale. He lost both he belts stripped. on the scale. He was, he stripped, was stripped of them. So after the third time he said he's fighting for a belt vacated by Shakur Stevenson, it wasn't vacated. He was trying to defend him and he lost him on the scale by the rules. Anyway, Shakur Stevenson is back. Fill us in on that real quick. And we got a couple of other fights too, that are in the offing that are, that are up yeah. and coming. So he'll make, you know, he, he didn't make the wait for the constant style fight. So we technically fought that fight as a lightweight but uh, the limit was 130. Now he's making his official move into the lightweight division. Uh, he'll be back at home uh, on an ESPN main event April 8th at the Prudential Center in Newark, where he's from. He will fight the Japanese contender, uh, Suchichiro Yoshino, who's mm -hmm. got some wins against known Japanese fighters such as Ito and uh, Nakatani. So he's been on some of the ESPN Plus shows. He's a good fighter. He stands no chance, in my opinion, against Shakur Stevenson and no knock on Yoshino, but it's like most of these guys, uh, the the skill level and the and the and the IQ and and the, the hometown and just the overall speed, skills, defense, you name it, is going to be probably too much for him. But in any event, he is a good fighter. He is fighting Shakur. They, this is for the WBC elimination. So right now that belt, among all the others, is held by Devin Haney, who is most likely going to have his fight with uh, Vasily Lomachenko. But the bottom line is Shakur is going to be in position to become the WBC's mandatory, whether that means a fight against Haney, that means the fight if Lomachenko wins, perhaps for a vacant title if uh, Haney were to win and move up and wait. The bottom line is he's positioning himself uh, in this particular fight. They announced also without opponents what I reported, which is that the heavyweight Jared Anderson, uh, last year's uh, 2021, I should say, my prospect of the year, will be in the co-feature. Uh, Keyshawn Davis, my 2022 prospect of the year, the Olympic silver medalist, he will be in uh, the opening televised fight on this card. So you got some tremendous talent that's going to be on that show. One of the number, one of the best fighters in boxing in Shakur, and like literally, to my opinion, the two best prospects in the sport, uh, you know, in supporting bouts. So that was made official uh, on uh, on Saturday. And let's hear it for the fact of getting these guys back in the ring, get them more active, get them out there, all of them, including uh, Jared Big Baby, Real Big Baby Anderson, and Keyshawn Davis. Love that with more active. All right, you got a couple of other things. You have been reporting about Zerto Ramirez and when he might be back. You've learned of a possible date, correct? 
Yes, uh, Zerto Ramirez last seen uh, losing uh, in, you know, in surprisingly massively one-sided fashion back in November in a title shot that he was mandatory for. They'd been chasing uh, Dimitri Bebel around for a while. Uh, he just didn't really show up in that fight. He got completely outclassed. They did that fight over in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. So he, of course, is not going to retire. That was his first defeat. Uh, still has a chance to do some big things, in my opinion, given the, uh, the landscape of that weight class and the kind of style he fights in. And anyway, he's with Golden Boy. His, his next fight is due and ticketed to be the main event of a zone card site. TBA will be March 18th. So that's uh, that's what's in the offing for there. No opponent yet. I've heard rumblings and a possibility of Gabriel Rosado, uh, the big-hearted journeyman, uh, you know, 26-16-1, and one, usually makes his opponents work for their win. I don't love that matchup if it happens, but at least if it does happen, you know, Rosado is going to give it his all. Um, I think they can probably do better, but again, we'll leave that to uh, – Golden Boy to see what's going to be the official opponent. So, but in any event, the main thing here is Zerto's back March 18th. Uh, you've also learned of a purse bid that's been ordered. Do we have do we need to see this fight for the WBC uh cruiserweight eliminator, Sergey Kovalev and Machunu? Do we need not this a bad fight? Right I don't know if we need it, but it's not a bad fight. I was uh uh messaging back and forth with uh Mauricio Suleiman, the president of the WBC. We were talking about some of the upcoming fights. This is a fight that they uh, have a purse bid scheduled for so that the sides can make a deal. They have till February 24th. If it doesn't get made, they'll go to a purse bid. And look, as far as cruiserweights go, it's not a deep division. I know Kovalev got knocked out and pretty badly by uh, Canelo Alvarez back in uh, 2019. He came back since then. He won a fight in the cruiserweight division, a, a pretty good performance where he won you know, pretty handily against Tervel Pulev, the brother of Kubra Pulev. And, and now he is the next available guy because remember at the convention, the WBC had ordered Machuno versus Badu Jack. Badu Jack was given the opportunity against the champion, which is uh, 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 Macabu. They're fighting on the Jake Paul, Tommy Fury undercard. So this was the next mandatory that they ordered. So it's a reasonable fight to me. And look, I know Kovalev's not what he once was, but Kovalev's been, you know, has been uh, or was for a number of years one of the best fighters in boxing, a devastating champion in the light heavyweight division. He's obviously playing out the string of his career, but. He's going to have the opportunity to put himself in position to maybe get another title shot. So to me, I'm not saying it's the biggest fight in the world, but it's worth noting and it's sort of interesting. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with him. Uh, but uh, it's a winnable fight. Machuno has been there before. He's had his opportunities in the past. And uh, I look at this kind of fight as sort of like a loser go home, goes home kind of fight if it, if it gets done. All right. Nostalgia time. Oscar De La Hoya turned 50 years of age oh. this weekend. Are we oh. that old? I'm yeah, we're that old. that old. Am I that old? I am. Yeah, Oscar is 50. I still remember the fresh-faced golden boy winning the Olympic gold medal and turning pro in the early 90s, and that's officially 30 years ago. So well, Oscar you, is if, now 50. Wow. If you thought that Oscar turning 50 was crazy to you, if you looked at Oscar's Instagram over the weekend, you thought he was celebrating his 21st birthday the way that he was partying. So <laughs> I hope Oscar had a safe time and a good time over the weekend. But yeah, as I like to golden say, boy he doesn't he doesn't get cheated. He never gets cheated on those kind of things, Oscar. No. Oscar Oscar plays just about as hard as he fight when he when yeah. he was fighting. Uh, look, Oscar De La Hoya at age fifty. I mean, it, 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 the crazy thing about Oscar put it put aside all the craziness that's occurred in his personal life and all the things that have gone on in his business life as the the CEO and owner of Golden Boy Promotions. But if you look at him in terms of his days as a premier athlete, an Olympic gold medalist, the face of boxing for most of his career, which ran from nineteen ninety two to two thousand eight, um, he was the the number one attraction in the sport during his heyday. He was the biggest star, the biggest pay-per-view attraction. And when you fought Oscar, you became a big star yourself. Uh, I dare say that without Oscar De La Hoya, uh, the Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather 
uh, level of stardom that those two great fighters achieved would not have no come close without the benefit of Oscar to use my WWE parlance, putting them over, if you will, uh, like he did by by agreeing to fight both of those guys. But the thing about it is this. Oscar De La Hoya as a boxer, in my mind, has become dramatically underrated. He's a Hall of Famer. He was the first fighter ever in boxing to win world titles in six weight classes. I understand that his first title at 130 pounds of the WBO was not like the biggest title in the world, but, you know, facts are facts. Uh, but here's the most important thing. He fought everybody. And today, I think that the fans should appreciate what Oscar did because we have so much trouble getting all these guys trying to protect their O that they won't sign up for the toughest, biggest Amen. fights. Now, Amen. in the case of Oscar De La Hoya, he fought everybody like and he was active like we can talk about guys fight once a year we bitch about that twice a year we bitch about that now he didn't do this every year but it's sort of canelo when he went on that run where he fought four times in 11 months not that long ago was sort of taking a page out of the out of the oscar de la hoya book who was probably the last big superstar to do this in 1999 i want to say or 1998 whatever in that time frame 97, one of those years, he fought five times against top names, pay-per-views back on HBO because he understood how it was to build your brand and become and stay a star. So just I'm going to just reel off. He's 50 years old. Happy birthday to Oscar De La Hoya. I've known Oscar since day one of my boxing writing career. I remember my first meeting with him uh, in person uh, in, the, in, the, in the media center, in the Staples Center, when he fought Shane Mosley for the first time. I've conducted quite literally probably – I don't know, hundreds of interviews with Oscar De La Hoya. I've been out with him socially a couple of times, a few times. You know, I feel like I've known Oscar pretty well compared to the average fighters that I have covered through my career, and he knows me also. Um, we haven't always seen eye to eye. We've had some rough scrapes over the years. I mean, you know, uh, we don't have to get into the details on the bad things, but most of my interactions with Oscar have been positive. I like Oscar. I wish him nothing but the best. But in terms of his boxing career, he is underrated. I know he took some tough losses. But he also won some big fights also, but he fought everybody and he was never in a position where when he lost, it was like his career was over. You know, when he got knocked out by Bernard Hopkins in a middleweight title fight and he took some time off and he came back and he knocked out Ricardo Mayorga to, be, to become a champion again at 154 pounds. He went back from middleweight back down to junior middleweight. Coming off that loss with that rousing victory in an exciting fight, there was never a moment in his career where I think he was more popular than on the night that he defeated Ricardo Mayorga. Um, but just to give you an idea here, and I wrote, the, I, I typed this in. You always tell me I'm not looking at things. Well, right now I'm looking at it. You are. In no particular order. Here's, here are the names, the best names that he fought. Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather, Bernard Hopkins, Pernell Whitaker, Felix Trinidad, Fernando Vargas, Shane Mosley twice, Julio Cesar Chavez twice, Ike Corte, Arturo Gatti, and Hector Camacho. And I didn't even include Gennaro Hernandez, James Leja, Rafael Ruelas, Jorge Paez, whatever. This dude fought everybody. Yep. Winky Wright would get pissed off at me if I didn't say he didn't fight Winky Wright. Fair enough. That's maybe the one guy. It never really worked out. I mean, they could have fought for the Oscar. Hey, wait, wait, wait. You'll love this. I was around Oscar, and Oscar was promoting Winky Wright's title fight with Ike Corte. Speaking of all those names, it was in Tampa, I want to say 2006. And I'm not looking at anything while I quote that to you. And I interviewed Oscar De La Hoya. And Oscar De La Hoya, I said, you never really have wanted to get in the ring with Winky. He goes, I'm never fighting him. 
He goes, I would not be able to beat him. I would not be able. He goes, I'm admitting this to you. I would not be able to handle that jab. I'm never fighting him. I never would want yeah. to fight him. I'm never fighting him. That was the ultimate compliment for Winky as much as his bank account and his historical ledger suffered from it. Oscar fought everybody else is your point. On yeah, that. My, but, and I mentioned Mayorga also. I mean, look, if he had fought Winky at the time in what was still considered the three belt era, they would have been fighting for the undisputed title at junior middleweight because Oscar had beaten Vargas. He had beaten Javier Castileo for the WBC title as well as the lineal title. And Winky was sitting there with the IBF title. Okay, I'm going to give him a pass because I just named about 20 guys that he did fight sure. all top of the food chain guys, you know, in terms of their names. Now, fine. When he fought a guy like Camacho, Hall of Famer or Gaddy, Hall of Famer, they were past their prime, but he fought. Pernell Whitaker was maybe not at his ultimate best, but he was still the champion. It was a close fight. He fought Felix Trinidad when he was undefeated. He got robbed in that fight. He fought a monster like Bernard Hopkins, who was, you know, the dominating middleweight sure. champion at the time. Chavez, I mean, the second fight, fine. He was past his best and maybe even the first fight. But the first fight, he was still the champion. Um, Shane Mosley, he gave the opportunity to when he was an undefeated fighter. Uh, and they put on one of the great fights I've ever been to in their first battle. Second fight. Uh, he got, in my opinion, he he got a bad decision that night, which was the time when Shane uh, was, was and he admits this, that he was using PEDs, the clear and the cream from uh, Victor Conte from Balco. Um, Ike Corte was, you know, a tremendous fighter. That was a rousing fight. Who could forget when he, uh, you know, they traded knockdowns and almost stopped him in the uh, late part of that fight in a, in a legendary sequence. Uh, he stepped up to the plate and fought, fought Floyd Mayweather. He obviously stepped up to the plate and fought Manny Pacquiao when it turned out to be his last fight. So again, on Oscar's 50th birthday, my main point here is people should remember that with all the stuff that's in the news these days about his personal life and his promotional endeavors, should not forget that he, in my mind, be, has become a vastly underrated great fighter. Overwhelming. One of the top, I think it's fair to say, one of the top 10 fighters of the last 30 years of boxing, probably one of the top five fighters. Think about it now. Of the last 30 years of boxing, he's probably one of the top five. Got to be. Got to be it's, right. Just, uh, it's debatable. You can, you can, it's debatable. But, Top 10, yes. Top 5, maybe not. I, but, but here's I mean, the other point. About it, but I'm talking he, about, think about the 90s and the early 2000s. Now, we've gone on. Life goes on. But, I mean, he was he was top two fighters probably in the 90s. I, I the thing that I, I remember yeah. asking after this in an interview once about what he was most proud of in his career. And, it, you know, it wasn't all the titles. It wasn't all the money. It, what he said to me, and it stuck with me, he said, because I fought everybody. That was what it was important. Yes. He wanted the respect from the fans because he never ducked a challenge. And yeah, fine, he lost some fights and, he, and, and and they were tough losses, but he also won some big fights too. You know, it's unfair when people say, Oscar, well, you know, he lost all his big fights. Yeah, okay, fine. He lost some of his big fights. But you know what? <laughs> when he fought Fernando Vargas, that was a huge fight. And he won that fight. When he fought Chavez, especially the first time, yes. huge fight. Won that fight. Pernell Whitaker, huge fight. Now, some people say he didn't win the fight. I say bullshit. He beat Pernell that night. I don't care what you say. And I'll, I'll fight. I'll die on that hill anytime you want uh, to talk about it. Uh, and he was competitive. Look, he gave Floyd Mayweather. He may not have won that fight. Fair enough. But that was about as competitive a fight as Floyd has seen in his career, other than maybe the first fight against Jose Luis Castillo, uh, maybe the Miguel Cotto fight. But that was a very tough, close fight. Uh, uh, for Floyd Mayweather on that night. And that was Oscar basically at the end of his career. So, you know, I appreciate everything Oscar has done for the sport of boxing. Uh, he was the the face of the sport for a long time. He was the rainmaker. Everybody wanted to fight him because he delivered the money. He had a diverse fan base, whether you were American, Hispanic, black fans. Uh, women loved him uh, at his fights. Uh, you know, he drew from all different 
walks of life. He's the fan. He uh, he had fans from people that weren't boxing fans. You know, your grandma. You know, your 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 buddy that didn't do anything in terms of sports, but knew about him because he might have watched him on a pay per view at a party, and they became Oscar fans, if not boxing fans. So he drew from from all walks of uh, the spectrum. And uh, I look at it like this, and, and I was fortunate to come on to the boxing beat. Uh, not maybe for I was right after the Trinidad fight, so from the Mosley one till the end of his career, I covered all of Oscar's fights. You knew that in rare exception when he was had a couple layoffs, but that twice a year as a reporter, you were getting the Super Bowl of boxing and you go to Las Vegas or wherever his fights were once in Los Angeles at that time. Uh, and you were going to get a huge mega event that was going to be mainstream sports news on the front page of the sports section, you know, going to have coverage on sports center and he was going to fight a big name. It was going to be a big party in Vegas for, for the weekend. Uh, you know, I was appreciated that. Love that. All right. Two more quick things. And then we're gone. Ray Charles Leonard, Sugar oh Ray Leonard, pro debut. What are we talking about now? Nineteen seventy-seven. So now we're talking. So now we're talking about forty-six years ago, right after Oscar was born. Sugar Ray Leonard made his pro debut after the uh, the Montreal Olympics, and the rest is history. Fought. Uh, do you have it in front of you? Fought a guy named Luis Vega in Baltimore, Maryland. On February 5th, as we release the podcast, on Sunday, February 5th. On national television, by the way. Uh, and and the rest is history because he started making a bunch of money early on as as just a, a fighter on the rise fighting contender fights without even fighting championship fights. As yeah. Marvin Hagler pointed out in the, uh, in the Four Kings documentary series with Showtime that he was having trouble getting $50,000 for his title fights. And Ray Leonard was fighting non-title contender fights, making 50 grand because he was sugar yeah. Ray Leonard because he I think he made 40,000. I think he made 40 grand for his pro debut, which was remember 1977, yeah. $40,000 was an astronomical amount of money for a non-title fight. Of course. But here's the thing. We're talking about milestone for different reasons. Oscar turning 50 sugar Ray Leonard, having his pro debut 46 years ago uh, on uh, Sunday, as we taped this, they were the two stars of their time fought in the same weight classes. You know, I mean, Oscar fought as a little bit of a lighter fighter, but became the superstar superstar once he hit welterweight. Uh, and they have many things in common. Both were Olympic gold medalists. But Sugar Ray Leonard, look, he was my my as a, in my early days as a boxing fan, as a young kid, Sugar Ray Leonard was my boxing idol. Me too. Yeah. Hand up. I mean, and I agree. Absolutely. So he uh, to think that he's now it's 46 years since his pro debut. What a great career. You, you know, you, you can argue. Uh, you know, he's one of the, maybe him and Duran, maybe the two greatest living fighters uh, still with us, thank God. Um, he had a, a, an incredible career. They, we've said more. this. We've said this. They were the bridge, he, Duran, Hearns, and Hagler, to post-Muhammad Ali. That post-heavyweight, they were the bridge on what are the biggest fights, the pay-per-views, the people are most interested in. And again, what you said about De La Hoya, Leonard and Duran and Hagler and Hearns were all willing to fight each other. Now, in that day, that's where the mega money was, was to yeah. fight each other. But they were all willing to fight each other. And again, we can't convey that enough to younger fans that post-Ali, the most attention was being paid to those four guys and well, all their Ali fights. Retired. His re Ali was done in like 80, 81 when mm -hmm. he had his last fight. And then came the year of the four kings as you mentioned and their nine fight series between leonard hagler mm -hmm. duran and hearns spanned their first fight of that of that was at the beginning of the decade the ninth and final fight which was the third fight between leonard and duran their first fight had kicked off 
that uh, great rivalry fight. Remember, he fought Duran in the first fight in 1980. The last fight of the series of those great fighters was 1989. So the rivalry spanned all those nine fights the entire decade of the 80s. So they and they were petering out in the latter part of the decade. So they had a brief overlap with what would you consider the next era of boxing. So if you go from the Ali era, the bridge, of course, becomes the four kings that I just mm -hmm. mentioned. As they're approaching the end, you had the ascension. It was the Mike Tyson era. So yes. in between Ali and Tyson, what carried boxing was those four kings. And the leader of those four kings, if you will, the rainmaker, the guy who fought most of those guys or had more of the nine fights they had against each other. Ray Leonard was involved in the most of them because he was the biggest star of all of them. He was the glue of that great foursome that he was the guy. And so, you know, 46 years ago, it started because he had the pro debut. And from a personal standpoint, I told you Sugar Ray Leonard was my boyhood idol as a, of, a, of a boxing, uh, uh, my boxing fanhood. So for me to grow up as an adult, and in like 2011, 12, 13, to have the opportunity to call Ray Leonard my broadcast partner for uh, several of the boxing events that we did on the Epic's premium cable network, mm -hmm. which for two and a half years did boxing. I was their analyst on those shows to hang. You know, he wasn't our full-time our full-time expert, so to speak. I worked with Freddie Roach. I worked with Lennox Lewis. I did a couple shows with Lou DiBella, but mm -hmm. I did I did a, I did a few shows with Ray Leonard also, and it was one of the great joys of my entire career to be able to just sit with him and, and talk to him and, and hear stories about his career and, and uh, hang out with him. We traveled to England together for one of the fights we did. I mean, what's better than that to go and hang awesome. out with your, your, and here's the great thing about it. You know, when you meet your idols, you hope they're not assholes. You know, you don't, you want to like lose the image in your mind. Like, of like course. Okay, I really look up to this person. I admire this person. I enjoy watching this person. And then you meet the person they turn out to be a dick. Sugar Ray Leonard is anything but that he was as nice and as cool and as great to deal with and not uh, condescending. He was just like, just the best guy, is the best guy to know and hang out with. Just an absolute pleasure for me in my life to get to know Sugar Ray Leonard. And we celebrate the uh, turning his uh, anniversary of his professional debut. And yep. uh, God bless him. I love Sugar Ray Leonard. It all began on February 5th, 1977. I have told the story many times on these podcasts and whatever. I was crushed the night that Duran beat Leonard because it wasn't, I wasn't able to see it. Uh, it was in the summer of 1980. It was on the radio that he had lost. We didn't see the fight until days later. They showed a replay like on ABC of the fight. Uh, he later avenged it. Um, and, and by the way, one more shout out. Sugar Ray Leonard, when you go back and watch those fights in the 80s that he was a broadcaster on, tremendously insightful as an active fighter doing the broadcast. And it was almost unheard of that you had an active world championship fighter that was on world championship fights regularly on CBS, network TV, HBO broadcasting, uh, and later even on pay-per-view, giving insight and analysis while an active fighter. I enjoyed him thoroughly with the insight and the analysis on that. Love Sugar Ray Leonard. I want to give people an idea. When we talk about guys today, the stars, quote-unquote, the stars who fight once a year, twice a year, mm -hmm. who won't fight the biggest and best fights. So think about that as I tell you this. From ninth, the end of 1979 to 1981, which is when he had the first fight with Tommy Hearns, and then he was, you know, it was he was off, he took one more fight, then he was off because of the eye injury, he retired, mm -hmm. whatever. But so from late 79 to basically the end of 1981, so we're talking about two years, in a two-year time, a little less than two years actually, it was like 22 months. He fought Wilfredo Benitez, who was undefeated, and he won the welterweight title. Fought Davy Boy Green in a defense. Fought Roberto Duran and suffered the loss. 
came back in his next fight. In, this is 1980, end of 1980. He beats Duran in the famous No Mas fight, mm-hmm. makes him quit, regains the welterweight title. Takes a couple defenses. He fights Larry Bonds, tough dude. Fights the undefeated Ayub Kaluli, where he moved up in weight and won the super welterweight title, junior mm-hmm. middleweight title of the WBC, or WBA rather. Then he fought the big fight, Tommy Hearns, to unify, become, again, this is the two-belt era, became the undisputed welterweight champion in a gargantuan, one of the biggest fights in the history of boxing. Hearns Leonard won. And that then he was off because of the injuries in the retirement. But so I just gave you what he did. His career, Benitez, Duran twice, Kalule, and Hearns, all in like less than two full years. Then he came back. He had a couple of fights, you know, where he was coming out of retirements. Then in 87, he goes from basically his previous fight as a welterweight after like a three and a half or whatever, four year left, goes up and beats Marvin Hagler for the middleweight championship in what was Hagler's final fight, as it turned out. Now, I know people like to argue about that. Again, another hill I'll die on. Sugar Ray Leonard beat Marvin Hagler. And if, yes, you want to with me, if you want to score with me, we can do that on a podcast. Maybe one day we'll do that. And then he ended up becoming you know, a champion in other weight classes. He beat Donnie Lalonde. He, beat, uh, he had the draw with Hearns in the rematch, which he really lost, fair enough. He then beat Duran in uh, the third fight of the, of the trilogy to end the year of those four kings in a horrible fight, whatever. And then he made the unfortunate decision to come back and have two more fights and losses uh, against Terry Norris and Camacho, which we don't count those. We pretend they did not exist. I actually, one of the conversations I had with Ray uh, when we were working together in Epics, we were just sitting in like the room, uh, what they call the green room before we were supposed to go out to the set and do the show. I forget how the topic came up. We had this whole long conversation about why he took the Terry Norris fight, which caused him to get fired from his commentator role on HBO because that fight was on Showtime, a whole big thing. And the one thing that I remember Ray saying to me was uh, that he wishes in retrospect that he never had taken the Terry Norris fight. But uh, that does not take away from the the, the the heyday that I just mentioned of all those huge fights he had in a very short period of time. And by the way, the list is long of all the great champions that continued to fight on and fought two or three fights they shouldn't have fought. Almost all of them did that. Mm-hmm. Very few retired on top, unscathed, and walked away. Uh, one more, and then we're gone. Am I going to hit you with something you don't know? 80, you 80 years ago on Sunday, February okay. 5th, 80 yeah. years ago, 1943, the Raging Bull, Jake LaMotta, beat Sugar Ray Robinson. Yes. The only time that LaMotta won their five battles. So that was 80 years ago. And Sugar Ray Robinson, by the way, was 40-0 and 0 as a professional. And had been 45 and 0 as an amateur. He had been 85 and 0 unbeaten in his life as a boxer when Jake LaMotta, the Raging Bull, the famous movie with Robert De Niro, et cetera, beat him and beat him for the first time in his pro career. And the only time in their five fights, he beat him 80 years ago, Sunday. Well, February we may be 5th, old, but we're not that old. We were, we're not, not around, around. Neither, one, still, neither, neither one of us is around for that. That one. is, I mean, there's notes, and that is a noteworthy note right there. Wow. Well, those that's fortunate, like you can find those great fights on, uh, you can go on YouTube and you can find some of their fights, uh, at least in black and white, mm-hmm. or maybe partial fights of, of that whole incredible, uh, you know, uh, group of uh, fights. And just by the way, they fought each other six times, not six five times. times, including the uh, famous, what do they call it, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Yep. Uh, you know, what can you like say? The that Raging mean, again, Bull of- and Sugar Ray Robinson. That was a big deal. Uh, you know, your grandfather. Your grandfather talked about those fights. Those were those were the fights, and that was 80 years ago, Sunday, February 5th. Well, I never Robinson's had the, uh, the great loss. privilege to meet Sugar Ray Robinson. He died, obviously, way before I was involved or writing about boxing. But I did have the very good fortune uh, to meet Jake LaMotta on a couple of occasions. He would come to big fights 
And uh, I don't know if I ever told the story. You want to hear a quick Jake Lamont? Quick, story? yes. So I was in New York City covering a fight. This is way at the beginning of my career. This is like 2000, 2001, 2002, something like that. We go to a famous uh, uh, bar slash restaurant in New York City called the Lanes, where a lot of uh, folks hung out in the, that were in the media world and whatever. And I'm sitting there, and I'll never forget this. I, well, Lou DiBella was there with us, and a few other of the writers. There was probably like seven or eight of us. And in walks Jake LaMotta. And he knew Lou because Lou had been in HBO and they had done documentary involvement and whatever. And obviously he was around the fight game. And of course he's wearing his trademark cowboy hat. He comes over to our table and says hello to some of the guys there. He knew some of the other writers that were older than I, and that he had recognized. And he, and he took his hat off and he smiled and said, hi there. My name is Robert De Niro. <laughs> De Niro of course played him. For those course. who don't realize he was pretending he's De Niro who played Jake LaMotta in the famous movie raging bull. So Jake, uh, that was my introduction to Jake Lamont, who was a a real character, and uh, it was a cool guy to meet. And uh, you know, I didn't like know him well, but that was I'll never forget that for him to come over. And I'm sure we were not the only ones that he said that to. He probably used that line, of course, uh, a lot. But it was hilarious to me, and uh, I, it was very good humored, and uh, it was really cool meeting the Raging Bull that day. Made De Niro famous too to play the Raging Bull. There we go, nostalgia to wrap it up. All right, a ton on this podcast. Great stuff in the recap mode. Uh, I think we are good. We covered everything from the women's double header championship on the Matchroom to Zone show, the Navarrete wild fight with Liam Wilson. If you didn't get a chance to see that, go back and relive the drama of that. It's not quite the same as in the moment, but still, it was dramatic. And that's going to be a candidate for fight of the year. Serrano's fight will probably be a candidate for the uh, fight of the year as well. Ladies fight of the year for sure. Uh, Mr. Rayfield, I think we're good. We're ready to embark on another week. Anything else? I think we're good, my man. All right. Again, thank you for finding us. Make sure you follow or subscribe to the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. More and more of you are doing that. Uh, we will announce the giveaway winner later on in this week for those that rated us and reviewed us in January. Make sure you took a screenshot of that. Tag Dan, tag Big Fight Weekend socially so we can see it. We're going to draw somebody at random, give away the cool uh, memorabilia, the Tecate uh, Fight Memorabilia Cups. You're going to designate a couple of them, give those to somebody that rated and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, and a lot of you did go ahead and follow through and do that, but take the screenshot and send it to us and we'll draw a name. Fight preview coming for Vargas Foster for the featherweight world title fight that's coming on Showtime PBC this weekend. We'll do that in the big fight weekend preview mode later this week. Dan, have a good week. Thank you, my friend. And just so real quick, that's for the junior lightweight title you're talking about. Junior lightweight title. WBC junior lightweight title. He's moving up from featherweight on that, and we will talk more about that in the preview mode later in the week. For now, we're good on the Fight Freaks Unite recap podcast. <laughs>